the alkaline diet, it just is a good diet. The foods that are recommended to be avoided, usually the foods that are known to create inflammation or can be difficult to digest or you know, have other issues that are associated with them or have certain proteins that are known to be allergenic. Uh, the alkaline foods tend to be micronutrient-rich foods as well. And if you look beyond the acidic and alkali thing, it's, it's just a good diet in general. Conceptually, it may not be the alkali nature of those foods that's actually creating the good health, but um, I think to dismiss the, the fact that this diet seems to be helpful, and certainly in clinical practice, it's very, very helpful. Just because it's got a funny name or a funny way of explaining it, I think can be a bit short-sighted. You're missing the forest for the trees. I'd like to have my own television show, Mrs Snook told a journalist in the late 1970s. The newspaper thought this was pretty funny and ran the headline, Nature Cure Granny Wants Her Own TV Show, adding an exclamation mark to indicate they were not being serious. In the article, Mrs Snook, then aged 65, stated, I'd like to have a program where people could write to me and I could talk to them on air. I'd be able to present on screen the proper foods to eat in their right combinations and at the right times. It would be a wonderful way for such a powerful influencing medium as TV to help people to cure themselves and stay healthy instead of living in pain and misery and relying on medical surgery and drugs. Mrs Snook was speaking in 1979 after Australian journalist Terry Willisey featured her and her client's success stories on his popular Perth current affairs program, Terry Willisey's Perth. The show promised periodical updates on the progress of Mrs Snook's clients, including a mother aged in her 40s whose body was said to have been riddled with cancer and who had been given six months to live by doctors. Mrs Snook was confident the woman could survive, provided she stuck to the right diet. She told the newspaper that she had total success in curing arthritis patients that she had seen over the years, and at least 70% success with cancer patients. She said she had suffered similar ailments and survived, saying, quote, It was all to do with eating raw vegetables, nuts, especially almonds, whole grains, sunflower and other seeds, herbs, avocado pears, and balancing your meals. It's important to know 80% of your foods should be alkaline-forming, fruit and vegetables, and 20% acid-forming, proteins and starches. It was this balancing of meals, she said, was the secret to success. Hi, I'm Greta Pools, and this is Raw. At the beginning of this episode, you heard from Associate Professor John Wardle from the University of Technology, Sydney's School of Public Health, discussing the alkaline diet. The original alkaline diet, developed nearly a century ago in the United States, was a key tool of Mrs Snook's nature cure treatments. It was the diet she learnt from Alice Caporn, and she firmly believed the diet had saved her life. In this episode, we will look at the science behind some of Mrs Snook's theories on diet and disease. Listeners of this podcast will know that I am a supporter of Mrs Snook's diet, having experienced my own personal dietary revelation when I first tried her gut cleanse diet, as detailed in episode one. What struck me back then was that much of what Mrs Snook taught about avoiding processed foods, eating whole foods and lots of vegetables was in fact what scientists were now learning from the science of the gut microbiome. 
The way food is processed is a key factor in determining the amount and type of material that reaches and provides nourishment to the bulk of the gut bacteria located in the bowel. Mrs Snook emphasised the health benefits of eating raw fruit and vegetables and we know that plant material consumed raw does generally contain higher levels of nutrients and also lower levels of fat and sodium. However, for some people, raw foods can cause irritation or bloating and cooking or lightly steaming some vegetables can boost nutrient uptake as opposed to eating the food in its raw state. But it is generally the case that eating fruit and vegetables raw does, in many instances, offer increased gut health benefits. And intact plant cell walls, which have not been destroyed by mechanical or thermal processes, are not easily digested. So these foods can reach the gut microbiota in the bowel and are the preferred foods of bacteria that are beneficial for our health. Mrs Snook's gut cleanse diet consists of nearly all raw foods, but she did not advise for this diet to be followed for longer than three months. While she advocated eating raw vegetables and fruit, her books also include recipes with cooked foods. It is hard to stick to an entirely raw food regime, particularly in a cold climate, but Benedict Lust, who founded Naturopathy in New York in 1901, claims to have managed it for a period of six years. So raw is good in most cases, but what about the alkaline diet? And what of Mrs Snook's belief that all disease begins in the gut? It might come as a surprise to you to know that the alkaline diet is nearly a century old. Like the keto diet, the alkaline diet was popular in the United States during the 1920s and 30s, during the period when Alice Capone was studying nutrition and health in America. And the alkaline diet remains popular with naturopaths. The central premise of the diet is that the acidity or alkalinity, that is the pH value, of your body can be influenced by eating alkaline foods. The theory goes that acid foods like dairy and meat produce an acid ash when metabolised in the gut and this can make you vulnerable to illnesses such as cancer. Alkaline ash, however, which is produced mainly from plant foods, is considered protective. Here's how Mrs Snook describes it. All cancer patients I have seen have high acidity levels in saliva or urine. Animal proteins depend on the hydrochloric acid juices of the stomach for digestion and this makes them acid-forming, so they must be equally balanced with alkaline foods such as raw vegetable salads and raw fruits. Correctly balanced meals are the secret to good health. Three quarters alkaline and one quarter acid is the correct combination. For one quarter fish, eat three quarters raw salad vegetables, or three quarters fruit, one quarter nuts and raisins, and whole grain bread for heat and energy. The issue of acidity and alkalinity as measured in urine has been studied for decades. Eminent French physiologist Claude Bernard, who died in 1878, discovered that changing the plant-based diet of rabbits to a meat diet altered the animal's urine from a more alkaline state to a more acid one. Then we have the association of cellular acidity with cancer, as first described by the German Nobel laureate Otto Warburg, a pioneer in the field of cell biology. 
Warburg is regarded as one of the 20th century's leading biochemists. In 1924, he observed that cancer grew in an acidic state and theorised that the prime cause of cancer is the replacement of the respiration of oxygen in normal body cells by a fermentation of sugar. Warburg's theory that acidity caused cancer remained pervasive in cancer research up until the 1970s when it was found that all fast-growing cells share this trait. While the immediate environment around cancer cells can become acidic, this is due to the not yet fully understood differences in the way that tumours create energy and use oxygen compared with healthy tissue. Otto Warburg's work has led to a perception that too much sugar in the body causes acidity and acidity causes cancer. There may be some basis of truth in this, but the association of cancer with an acidic state in the body is complex and we don't fully understand it as yet. However, when it comes to the key concept of the alkaline diet, that reducing acid-forming foods such as sugar, meat and dairy from our diet helps prevent against cancer by making the body more alkaline, many claim that diet cannot manipulate the alkalinity or pH of our bodies. This conclusion is based on the fact that our blood pH levels are fixed. Our lungs and kidneys have a tightly controlled mechanism to regulate the pH of our blood. Yet diet can shift the body's acidity and alkalinity, but only within a narrow band of 7.32 and 7.42. We know that eating an alkaline diet is good for us, that is, eating plenty of raw foods, leafy green vegetables and plant-based foods. And there are many testimonials from people claiming to have reduced or cured cancer or other illnesses by eating an alkaline diet. The alkaline diet couldn't save my brother from cancer, but I'm glad that I persuaded him to try it, was a headline in Britain's Daily Mail in 2013. The article quotes British television presenter Tim Lovejoy, whose 37-year-old brother James tried the alkaline diet in his battle against pancreatic cancer and found that the diet gave him a new lease of life, allowing him to get up out of his sickbed and spend some time out of the house. The article features supportive quotes from Professor Justin Stebbing, an oncologist at Booper Cromwell Hospitals, who, while stating the alkaline diet cannot cure cancer, comments that the dietary changes of an alkaline diet can be beneficial for cancer sufferers, and the new rigid dietary regime may give patients a sense of control over their disease. While testimonials such as the many Mrs Nook includes in her books, or that her family have supplied to me, are dismissed by science, this does not mean that the alkaline diet should also be dismissed. Here's Associate Professor John Wardle from the University of Technology, Sydney. The idea of you know, perhaps testing your pee for, for alkaline, measuring that as a factor of good health is not probably ideal, but the notion of functionally describing foods as alkaline or acidic, a lot of traditional medicine diagnoses don't necessarily describe the physiology. Just like in the medical textbook, you have blue blood, you know, blue blood that returns to the heart and red blood that you know, comes out of the heart, the, the difference between arteries and veins. It doesn't mean that real blood is actually really blue and, and blood and arteries is actually, well, it is red, but you, know, you don't have that colour change. But it's a conceptual tool that helps practitioners and patients sort of understand the difference. While I caution against any oversimplification of the idea that diet can cure or prevent cancer, I don't believe we know enough about how the gut microbiome works to make any definitive statements about the alkaline diet, one way or the other. 
Yes, modern science dismisses the alkaline diet and ridicules its century-old theories of the body's biochemistry. However, the same vitriol from the medical community was once, and in some quarters still is, directed to a phenomenon that is popularly known as leaky gut syndrome. This theory, first proposed by the early 20th century nature cure doctors, was that toxic substances caused by eating the wrong foods that cannot be properly digested may result in material escaping the gut walls and spreading to other organs of the body where it can cause disease. Here's how Mrs Snook described it. So many folk come to see me with so-called different complaints, but the origin of them all is the same, constipation and indigestion. I have visited hospitals and seen people dying of cancer, while the doctors and staff give no thought to what the hospital chef is dishing up to them as food. Pork chops, stews, curries, polony, corned beef, white bread, white sugar, tea, coffee, biscuits, cake, milk, etc., how in the name of our living Christ has that person a chance of survival? The waste products of these undigested foods are enough to kill anybody. If we are to derive sustenance from the foods we eat, we must digest it. We must not leave it to rot. Thanks to advances in technology and the science of the gut microbiome, we now know this phenomenon is real. Leaky gut is now officially known as intestinal permeability, and we are still discovering its function and impact on our bodies. Here's John Wardle again. The funny thing about naturopathy is it often used quite floral language to explain concepts in ways that really freak medical doctors out. So when it talked about intestinal permeability, which is a big part of what sort of underlying pathologies associated with, you know, the microbiome being imbalanced, the name for that was leaky gut syndrome. A lot of these concepts were sort of entrenched in naturopathic medicine quite well, but it's taken a long time for science to catch up and sort of get past that notion that actually something coming from a crazy profession like the naturopath might actually have some validity. I still come across people who think the microbiome is a fad and hope that it will all go away soon. Unfortunately for these people, the gut microbiome is not going anywhere. In fact, scientists are now talking about a brain microbiome. Like Galileo turning his newly discovered telescope to the skies and discovering that the Earth orbited around the Sun rather than the Sun and other planets orbiting Earth, we are now shining a light on the complex systems within our bodies by means of new digital technologies. Your gut intestinal tract, the nine-metre-long pipe that carries food from your mouth to your anus, is, along with your skin and lungs, a part of your body that interacts with the outside world. You have probably heard that the gut is home to more than 100 trillion bacteria and other microscopic organisms such as fungi and viruses, but the gut microbiome is more than just a pipe which carries, digests and excretes our food. And it is more than the trillions of microbes that live within this pipe. The gut microbiome is a dynamic organ which acts as an interface between our genetics, our environment and our lifestyle. That is, the foods we choose to eat, how much we drink, whether we smoke, etc. In this way, each person's gut microbiome is entirely unique to them, as unique an identifier of an individual as a fingerprint. While we have known that our gut was host to bacteria for hundreds of years, it was presumed these microbes were little more than opportunistic parasites, feeding off the food we ate. But these microbes, in the great majority of cases, have co-evolved with us. 
we've recruited them into our bodies from our surroundings, and they have, in many cases, developed a mutually beneficial relationship with us. We now know that the gut is the front line of our immune system, the epicentre for our health. Around 70 to 80% of the body's immune cells are found in the gut. The gut is also home to the largest number of neurons in our bodies, found outside the brain. And there are even theories that in ancient evolutionary times, our brains evolved from our gut. This is completely speculative, but it does give you an idea of how important many now consider the role of the gut to be. Because in terms of physical size, a big part of us is our gut. If you were to extract the gut intestinal tract through which all your food travels and laid it out on a table with all the human tissue associated with it, the total surface area would measure an incredible 80 square metres. Here's how it all works. Let's imagine you're taking a bite of an apple. Immediately, as you chew the food in your mouth, around 9 billion microbes, a similar number to the entire human population of Earth, will have sprung into action to help you digest that food. The munched-up apple is then passed down your gut intestinal tract where it becomes food for more microbes, although not as many microbes as found in your mouth, until the food reaches your stomach. Here, the harsh acidic environment of the stomach further breaks down the apple until it is propelled into the upper or small intestine to be digested and absorbed. Much of our food is digested and absorbed in the upper intestine. High-fat and sugary foods are mostly absorbed here, offering limited nutritional benefit to the overwhelming bulk of the gut microbial population which resides in the large intestine, or bowel. You might say that food digested in the upper intestine feeds our bodies, whereas high-fibre and plant-based foods that require further digestion pass through to the bowel to feed our microbiota, our gut bugs. And it is these bugs which play a critical role in regulating our immune system and maintaining our health. Here's Professor Mike Gidley, Director of the Centre for Nutrition and Food Sciences at the University of Queensland. So if plant-based foods are the basis of a healthy diet, then we would argue then that the, the plant cellular structure, the plant cell walls, which we also call dietary fibre in nutritional terms, is the common component across all plant foods. And these are the foods which are typically underrepresented in, uh, in modern diets. What the epidemiology is, is pretty clearly showing is that the risks of uh, developing many of the so-called non-communicable diseases, uh, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, colon cancer, are all fairly tightly controlled or so are reduced by presence of, of a rich amount of fibre in the diet. There's some pretty reasonable evidence out there, and it's growing all the time, that the gut microflora are key mediators of the health benefits of plant-based foods, not just from the simple fermentation of dietary fibre, but so much more. gut, we have a very large surface area of human cells that interact with a very large number of bacterial cells, so it makes sense for most of our immune cells to reside and function in the gut as a sort of internal police force to control external influences on our microbiota and to regulate and respond to signals from inside. These interactions between our immune cells and our microbiota are very important. They help protect the gut 
But the chemistry produced from these interactions can also have a detrimental effect by entering into the blood system and translating to other symptoms or experiences in other parts of the body. They can trigger our immune system by causing inflammation. Inflammation is a response of our body's immune system to toxins ingested through our food or to cell injury. The standard Western-style diet, which is high in refined sugars, starch, meat protein and fat, not only significantly reduces the numbers and types of microbes living in our gut-intestinal tract, but also triggers inflammation. And if we keep eating foods that cause inflammation, it can have very serious health consequences. Chronic inflammation is now thought to be the ground zero of most health disorders, the cause of virtually every degenerative condition of the body, including cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and coronary artery disease. The human gut microbiome is extremely complex and what we currently know about it has been compared to Europeans arriving on the coastal fringes of Africa and making their first forays inland to learn about the unknown civilizations populating the continent. Most of the thousand or so species of microbes that live in our gut cannot survive in oxygen, but technological developments have allowed us to grow these microbes in the lab outside of the human body, and this allows scientists to study them and to sequence their DNA. And along with advances in computing power, which enables us to analyse these microbes and how they interact with us and with each other in real time, we are now gaining a new understanding of the gut microbiome as a complex system where genetics, environment and lifestyle must all be considered. Of course, this concept is nothing new to neutropathy. Here's John Wardle from the University of Technology, Sydney. This whole notion of a link between mental health, environmental health, personal and physical health, this wasn't something that was really well developed by conventional medical system. By definition, tried to reduce everything. You know, it was reductionist in, in its very nature, so it tried to ignore everything else that was going on with the person and try and reduce it to one single symptom that could actually be resolved, whereas by its very nature, naturopathy actually looks at the whole person to actually understand what's going on. So you can go to a naturopath and they can understand that actually maybe the, the uh, anxiety that you have is also manifesting in a way that's actually bringing out physical symptoms. Now, and only recently now, I'm starting to understand, but, you know, that was very common knowledge for naturopaths back then. So, you know, the microbiome is a really good example of that too. You know, there's a lot of science coming out about that right now, but it's been part of naturopathic treatment since, since its very beginning. We know now that cancer is associated with the changing profile of our gut microbiota, but it is not clear whether this is a cause of the disease or the consequence. We don't know enough to say whether it is the microbes that trigger chronic conditions in genetically susceptible individuals or the interactions of these microbes within our immune cells. There is much that we simply do not know. And I would suggest that to dismiss the theory of an alkaline diet as pure quackery when we know it is a diet associated with good health, is a little premature, because medical science does not always get it right. Let's take the case of Ligki Gup, which I referred to earlier. This naturopathic concept was derided by medical science and still is in some quarters. But let's not dwell on the minutiae of how nature cure doctors proposed leaky gut worked over a century ago, but consider their core idea that harmful substances could escape from the gut and infect other organs. The lining of your intestine is made of millions and millions of cells, which join together to create a tight barrier that controls what gets absorbed into the bloodstream. 
but this gut lining can thin and increase its permeability, that is, allow toxins to pass through the gut lining and enter into our bloodstream. This process can trigger inflammation in the gut and throughout the body and can cause problems such as bloating, gas, cramps, food sensitivities, fatigue, headaches and joint pain, just to name a few. Gram-negative bacteria are a major component of the health microbiome, but if the cell wall of dead gram-negative bacteria are exposed to the bloodstream, it can cause endotoxic shock. Slow leaks of these toxic molecules have been associated with autoimmune disease. Digestive conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease and Crohn's disease share many of the same symptoms as leaky gut. And all of these conditions are linked with chronic inflammation. Leaky gut may be the result of genetics, that is, being born with a weaker gut lining, or the result of a poor diet. Age can also play a role, as when you age, cells get damaged more easily and heal slowly, making the gut more vulnerable. According to Dr Alessio Fasano, director of the Centre for Celiac Research and Treatment at the Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital, reducing inflammation from your diet should, in theory, help rebuild the gut lining and stop further leakage. The most common way of doing this is through diet by, as a first step, eliminating known dietary causes of inflammation. These include excessive consumption of alcohol and processed foods. Doctors will also explore whether you have any food sensitivities to gluten or dairy, for example. Leaky gut may not be a disease in and of itself, but it is likely the mechanism by which some chronic diseases occur. We tend to assume all medical knowledge is absolute, but medicine is one type of competing healthcare, along with naturopathy and alternative medicine. Certainly with advances in drugs and surgery, modern medicine is masterful at acute care. But healthcare is incredibly political. It is an industry, like our food industry, and we are consumers of the products and services of those industries. Medical dominance of the healthcare system came about following the formation of the American Medical Association, or AMA, in 1847. The AMA was the first national formation of a professional association developed within the healthcare professions. Naturopathy was not founded until 1901. In 1905, the AMA developed a Committee of Medical Education and this committee lobbied for a systematic review of medical education in the United States, leading to the Flexner Report, which was published in 1910 by the Carnegie Foundation. Here's John Wardle. The Flexner Report was a, was a report on medical education which looked at all systems of medicine and basically the requirement for government funding. Essentially, you had to be a conventional medical school. It cast a very dim light on other systems of medicine, so it was very hard for those other schools to actually be accepted within the broader government systems for training, tuition, integration into the nascent health system of the US. It was always a very tumultuous relationship, and it was tumultuous because of, for political reasons, not because of health reasons. I have made my career in science, not as a scientist, but as a science communicator. Since childhood, I have always been inspired by the big ideas of science, 
by its achievements, like landing rockets on the moon, and the keys to the future that it holds. But medical doctors are not scientists. Some may be, but most are not. They are practitioners. As Richard Smith wrote in the British Medical Journal in 2004, a scientist is somebody who constantly questions, generates falsifiable hypotheses, and collects data from well-designed experiments, whereas most doctors follow familiar patterns and rules. Science has always been, and should always be, a battleground for contending views on what is true. But because of the close connection between medical knowledge and power, the risk is that those who command the dominant theories or ideologies within the public healthcare system rely on their position of influence to overcome those who oppose them. In a federal district court ruling in 1987 known as the Wilkes case, Judge Susan Getzendanner ruled that the AMA illegally conspired against chiropractic profession by seeking to create a Western medicine healthcare monopoly. She found the AMA to be guilty of the systematic defamation of the naturopathic, chiropractic and osteopathic physicians, guilty of publishing and distributing propaganda designed to ruin reputations, forcing other doctors to refuse any collaboration with naturopathic, chiropractic and osteopathic physicians in the co-management of patients, and denying hospital access to naturopathic, chiropractic and osteopathic physicians. In an article published on ABC's The Drum on February 21, 2012, Australian journalist Sarah Schwager comments that the argument that modern medicine is evidence-based is often used by medical lobbyists and tends to be generally accepted by the public. Evidence-based medicine is based on decisions made from the use of current best evidence for patient care. Such evidence comes from research publications, and there are a whole range of issues regarding how the pharmaceutical industry can influence researchers through what research gets funded. According to a report by a panel of experts assembled by the Institute of Medicine, well below half of medical care in the United States is based or supported by adequate evidence. According to this report, between 1993 and 2004, there was a more than 80% increase in the number of medications prescribed to Americans. This boom in pharmaceuticals outpaced the rate at which information on their effectiveness can be generated. While evidence-based medicine may be the best system we have at this point, the public should be aware of its weaknesses and to understand that healthcare is an industrialised, profit-driven industry, just as the food industry is. While a complaint or action against a dodgy, unregulated naturopath will be sure to make national headlines, there are many examples of when medicine gets it wrong, affecting the lives and well-being of hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people. This may not be due to incompetence or fraud, but to how the medical profession views health and disease and to limitations in the medical knowledge of the time. One example is how stomach ulcers used to be routinely treated. Before the work of the Australian researchers Professor Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2005 for the discovery of the role a bacterium plays in causing stomach ulcers, it was thought that stomach ulcers were caused by stress or spicy food. Here's the British medical doctor and gut health expert Dr Michael Mosley talking with Richard Feidler on the ABC's Conversations programme. 
At that time, everyone was convinced that stomach ulcers, which were quite common, some of your older listeners will probably be familiar with them, stomach ulcers were caused by stress. That's what everyone said. And the only way that you could deal with them was to take a drug produced by a Glaxo called Zantac, best-selling drug of all time. And what this did is it reduced the acid production in the stomach. And if that didn't work, you had your stomach taken out because this was a nasty disease. It was clearly psychosomatic. And here are two guys in Western Australia who said, you're completely wrong. Uh, we don't believe this at all. We have identified a previously unknown bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, which we have found in the stomachs of people who have stomach ulcers, and which we believe is responsible for the ulcers. Another more recent example is the standard removal of tonsils in young children, which is one of the most common paediatric surgeries performed worldwide. Tonsils are removed as a way of treating recurring tonsillitis or throat infections, middle ear infection, difficulty breathing or sleep apnea. A tonsillectomy often also involves removal of adenoids, which were thought to be redundant tissue. But it is now thought that adenoids and tonsils are part of our body's biosecurity and strategically positioned in the nose and throat to act as the first line of defence of our immune system against airborne pathogens. And recent research shows that removals of both tonsils and adenoids lead to higher levels of allergic, respiratory and infectious diseases later in life. In fact, Tonsillectomy may triple the risk for diseases of the upper respiratory tract compared to those who have not had the surgery. Diseases like asthma, influenza, pneumonia, chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Mrs Snook did not believe in the removal of any of the body's organs, which she believed were part of a whole. And there continues to be debate about the value and function of the appendix, another commonly removed organ. In 1939, Alice Caporn wrote that the appendix was an oiling can lubricating the colon, while the prevailing medical opinion at that time was that the appendix is a hangover from evolution and no longer necessary. Alice derided such beliefs as educated quackery, and today some researchers argue that the appendix is designed to protect good bacteria in our gut. In these instances and many others, it may be that these venerable ladies of the nature cure are being proved correct. Here's Stephen Myers, a professor in natural, complementary and integrative medicine at Southern Cross University and a qualified naturopath and medical doctor, discussing why we need both the medical and naturopathic approaches to health. Part of the concept in naturopathy is what's called the therapeutic order, which is using the least force or the, the most softest option first. doesn't mean you can't use harder options later, and it doesn't mean that harder options can't be used immediately if they're actually called for. You know, in the case of me falling on the floor with acute appendicitis, I'm quite happy that I have a hard option at that particular point in time. But with chronic disease, it's often about the correction of underlying problems associated with lifestyle that actually lead to people to have chronic disease. And I think medicine is completely underestimates and misses approach that's taken in naturopathic medicine, which is to actually deal with all of those foundations of health, um, otherwise known as the determinants of health in getting people well. So we won't just focus on the disease. There's no doubt that the education that naturopaths get are thorough. 
There's also no doubt in my mind, having studied medicine, that a medical doctor is expected to know the pathology and the pathophysiology of disease at a much greater depth than is probably taught in a naturopathic program. And there's no doubt that there is a different emphasis in the nature of treatment and in the need to have particular knowledge to be able to deal with an acute emergency. Trainings are actually very thorough for what they do, but they're very different in their, in their outcomes. One of the things that I found very disquieting about medicine is that people would be often seen as their disease. You know, that there's a liver cancer in bed 5C. Well, there's not a liver cancer in bed 5C. There might be Mrs. Smith who happens to have liver cancer in bed 5C. But let's actually get back down to the fundamentals that we're dealing with individuals and every individual has a whole manifestation of their health and well-being that we need to actually get to the root cause of. A lot of people ask me, did I find, when I studied medicine, did I find it in conflict with naturopathy? And I never did because I found the philosophy that medicine was based on, to me, seemed very naive that it didn't actually have a sophisticated approach to the concept of individualising treatment, that every individual was different, that it was extremely important to get to the root cause of a problem. And it didn't have a focus on health, which just seemed to me to be bizarre. You know, in my facetious moments, I point out to my medical colleagues that, and this is something that I think is undisputable, that we actually know that at least in chronic disease, that 80 to 85% of chronic disease has lifestyle causative factors, primarily nutrition. And yet, my facetious moment is that I say that medical education therefore should be 80 to 85% nutritional content. Most medical courses are lucky if they have three hours of nutritional lectures. There's a mismatch between the concept of health and well-being and medicine. And really, it is, in a sense, medicine is focused on disease. And it does that exceedingly well, especially acute disease and acute trauma. Naturopathic medicine is focused on health. And I think it does that particularly well. And I think really we need a system that actually has the capacity to do both. The French philosopher Voltaire once wrote in an essay on tolerance, think for yourselves and let others enjoy the privilege to do so too. For Professor Stephen Myers, John Wardle and other highly qualified naturopathic practitioners, there needs to be less vitriol directed towards naturopathy and complementary medicine. In their view, the dialogue about complementary medicine and its legitimacy as an academic discipline needs to be patient-centred, evidence-based, mindful of culture, enabling of safe professional practice and grounded in mutual respect and common sense. Yet there is, and always has been, systematic efforts to shut naturopathic and other complementary medicine courses out of the university environment. Naturopathy does not seek to replace medicine but to work alongside it. And if naturopathy is quackery, yet one in ten Australians are using it, would it not be important to ensure the profession is held accountable by academia and for naturopathic practitioners to be subject to appropriate professional government regulation? Why are there so many well-funded attempts to refuse the healthcare consumers these safeguards? 
Apart from asserting the unquestionable dominance of one ideology, surely there can be no sustainable rationale to support the removal of complementary medicine courses from a university environment. As Stephen Myers commented, the role of nutrition is recognised as increasingly important to health, but it is a subject poorly covered in standard medical studies. And just as the healthcare system asserts and supports one ideology over another, so too does the food industry. A lot of what we regard as the scientific facts in nutrition have been funded by food companies. Marion Nestle, Professor of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University, goes so far as to say that food science is the food industry. She cites the example of Cornell University's food science department and how in the early 20th century the university developed departments of dairy, meat and poultry science in order to support those industries. The food industry supports science to help companies make and develop new products and in that way food scientists support the food industry. While this system has led to innovation, increased food production and makes food cheaper to buy, I think of the response from a farmer at my local food market in Brisbane who sells eggs from organically fed free-range chickens to customers and one customer complained that the eggs were too expensive. When it comes to healthy food, she replied, you either pay for it now or you pay for it later. Now, as we understand the critical role of food and health in more detail, thanks to the science of the microbiome, there is increasing effort to prioritise nutrition content in food production. Scientists talk in terms of nutrition security rather than just food security, that is ensuring the world's population receives adequate nutrition from their food to maintain their health and well-being. And similarly, there has been a resurgence in naturopathy and emerging naturopathic-focused fields such as functional medicine. If you understand the history of naturopathy, few could argue that a lot of it makes sense. And what we are now learning about chronic disease and health was theorised and practised for over a century by naturopathic doctors. So let's be as critical of the belief systems and practices of medical doctors as we are of naturopaths and hold both allopathic and naturopathic medicine to the same rigorous standards. There are zealots on either side of this issue, those who regard naturopathy and alternative medicine as little more than witchcraft that taints modern medicine and poses a great threat to the vulnerable consumer and society as a whole, through to those who believe doctors are nothing more than a pawn in Big Pharma's profit-driven drug dispensing system. According to science communication theory, it is unlikely that those holding these extreme viewpoints will ever change their minds. But there is the sensible centre including those who may hold a bias to one end of these spectrums, but who are willing to listen to informed debate and have their views challenged. Next week in Raw, we will chart the rise of Dorothea Snook, a woman characterised as a dietary zealot, but whose views about diet and health are today widely accepted. The period from the 1960s through to the 1980s were the era when Mrs Snook experienced her greatest career triumphs, but also her greatest tragedy, the death of one of her children. I hope you can join me then. If you have enjoyed Mrs Snook's story so far, 
please don't forget to subscribe. And if you could take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, I would appreciate it. If you would like to learn more, visit my website, gretapools.com, for my biography of Mrs. Snook, which includes a gut cleanse diet, plus Mrs. Snook's own writings. The links are on the episode's webpage. Music